You're listening to Love, Maine Radio with Dr. Lisa Belial, recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Dr. Lisa Belial is a physician trained in family and preventative medicine, acupuncture, and public health. She offers medical care and acupuncture at Brunswick Family Medicine. Read more about her integrative approach to wellness in Maine Magazine. Love, Maine Radio is available for download free on iTunes. See the Love Maine Radio Facebook page or www.lovemainradio.com for details. Now here are a few highlights from this week's program. Yeah, it was a process. It, it was a shock. And yet there was some relief knowing that there was something that I could do. Just the not knowing is oftentimes worse than knowing what you're dealing with, I believe. I'm supposed to be in charge here. I'm supposed to be, I'm, we should, I should figure out this and have the money available and I should have, should, should, should. In this situation, I realized finally that uh, I could step back and let friends come in and do what they want to do to help us, and they did. I think illness can be a swift sorting of priorities for people. It can actually give quite a few gifts if you have the proper mindset. So I think context is everything, and the context is life. Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Harding Lee Smith of The Rooms, and Bangor Savings Bank. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 182, Women of Heart airing for the first time on Sunday, March 8, 2015. Heart disease was once known as a disease of men, and older men at that. Today we speak with previously healthy women who had sudden, unexpected heart trouble at relatively young ages. Their diseases were so severe that they required heart transplants. You will be surprised and inspired by our conversations with artist Anne Gable Allaire and her husband Bill, and Deborah Dahl Heffernan, author of An Arrow Through the Heart. Thank you for joining us. As a doctor, I've spent a fair amount of time talking with people whose lives have been changed dramatically by medical issues that have have cropped up suddenly. And the individuals that I'm speaking with today know all about this. Um, I'm talking with Anne Gable Allaire, who is a Maine artist who in 1997 was diagnosed with a medical condition necessitating radical procedures. She underwent a heart transplant and stem cell transplant within less than a year of each other. Her husband, Bill Allaire, recently penned a book about that experience called Miracles Do Happen, a story of medical and spiritual survival. Thanks so much for being here, and congratulations on being here for both Thank of you. you. Thank you. Thank you Thank for inviting nice. us. Yeah, it's nice to be here. You are, um, this is quite a story. And I know your daughter, Kate, who works here at Maine Magazine as the um, art director, and I didn't realize that your family had gone through so much um, back a few years ago. It was very dramatic, the way that this all happened. Um, from reading Bill's book, you were, you were at work one day, your boss heard a noise from the other room, he came in, you had collapsed on the floor. Um, why don't you tell the story about this? Or maybe Bill can, because I guess it's between the two of you that you've sort of pieced it together. <laughs> I'll let Bill begin. <laughs> well, that incident occurred because he was late for work. And uh, late, excuse me, late for an appointment, I guess would be a better way to say it. He was leaving the building. He heard this noise. And uh, he uh, walked over to the 
copy room and found in on the floor and uh, he couldn't revive her they had to call the local MDs but that the local EMTs and they came up and uh, had a defibrillator to get her heart going so that was the that was the incident yes her boss was there thank God the only person in the building besides her at the time so if he had left she wouldn't be here today with uh, or I wouldn't have had to write the book I guess your heart had completely stopped Mm-hmm. And that's what I've heard. That's what you hear. <laughs> and you didn't have any reason to believe that this was going to happen. You hadn't been ill that you knew of. Well, I had some um, episodes of feeling faint and passing out. And I'd actually been evaluated by a local cardiologist who said, oh, you're fine, you know, after the passing out incidents. And uh, he said, your heart wall's a little thick, but some athletes have that. And since I'd been running and was in really good shape, I thought, oh, I must be very athletic. <laughs> so there was there was indication that something was off, but nobody knew or, you know, we couldn't figure it out. So this was, um, this passing out was a definitive moment because then I had to really, uh, we had to, we had to find some more answers. She had actually passed out in March of that year and um, hit the ground face first just before we were going to take a little short vacation up in Portland here. So she looked like she was the victim of uh, domestic abuse, Uh, but she was okay when we had brought her to the doctor's office. The snow hitting the hard, cold snow is what brought me out of it that time. And then she passed out again in May in our home. I heard a thump upstairs, ran upstairs, and found her on the bed, pale as a ghost, white. She'd hit the ground again by the bathroom door and then walked over slowly to the bed. Uh, We found out later uh, from the doctors that those two incidents preceding the incident at work were uh, probably, by hitting the ground, actually struck her heart and brought back her rhythm if she had landed the way she did, which apparently was on her chest both times. So I said that was probably the only reason she came out of it then. But this third time, however she landed or whatever happened, it wasn't gonna, have, it wasn't gonna come back on its own. So that was during the 97, the year this happened. Her evaluation before that had been by a doctor who she wasn't feeling well once in a while, and he said, you know, well, apparently that's just due to uh, you know, the athletic heart. Well, now we know it was because of amyloid. Well, talk about that. That's an interesting disease that not everybody knows about. Mm. Well, it's primary and secondary. Uh, secondary is inherited and has primary, or had primary, has primary. Um, it's a disease of the blood, so it's treated like leukemia. It's protein in the blood that, for whatever reason they still don't know, attaches itself to an organ of the body. Could be your eyes, could be your liver, could be your heart. Not kidney. your eyes with that one, though. With oh, I'm sorry. That. That's true. That's true. Uh, secondary is where it uh, usually affects the eyes. But uh, it, anyway, it, 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 what it does is a protein begins to, to, to attach itself to that organ, whichever organ it happens to be, and what it does is it renders it petrified after a while. But the problem with the disease is a lot of people have it, the initial phases of it come on like mononucleosis. So you just think, well, you're a bit lethargic, don't feel good, you go to the doctor. Most of the tests won't show anything unless you're looking for additional amounts of amyloid in the blood. And so to have a specific test for that, 
Well, most doctors wouldn't think to do it. And um, in fact, if I can interrupt here, the, um, and the waiting room at the amyloid treatment center in Boston is full of patients who have stories like that. Nobody could figure out what was wrong with them, and some were even told it was in their head. They needed to go see a psychiatrist. So it's a, it was. I think at that time it was particularly difficult to trace down and diagnose. I think that's changed now. There's more awareness of it anyway. And uh, as I pointed out in the book, we were only became aware of it simply because by chance, we call the God moment, uh, we ran into an oncologist at the hospital who knew Ann, who just happened to be on the floor, didn't even know she was in the hospital that day, and walked by and said, Ann, what are you doing here? It's in the book. Um, and he said, you know, it sounds like something I studied at BU. Let's, uh, let me check with your cardiologist. And so sure enough, they, they tested for amyloid. And of course, that's where we were, which was Southern Maine uh, Healthcare. Um, they could not treat it there, but I mean, the only place to treat it was in Boston anyway. But so we were very, very fortunate that we ran into him. She was going down to have her pacemaker installed when he ran into her. And he said, the pacemaker you're probably gonna have to have anyway. So he kind of gave us an, an indication that what we were doing was the right thing anyway, even though we weren't wild about having the pacemaker put in for a condition we didn't even know what they were putting it in for. So you've collapsed, your heart stopped, they revived you, they got you to Southern Maine Medical Center, you learned you had to have a pacemaker, and then all of a sudden you have this much bigger disease, and it's, it's about a transplant. You're actually going to need more than just something to restart your heart if it stops. You're going to need to have your entire heart taken out of your chest and replaced with someone else's. Yes. That must have been quite a shock. Yeah. Well, possibly. We had to be evaluated first to make sure that was the right road. And, the, and uh, they, so we, we went to Boston Medical for four days. And um, that kind of got me used to the idea, you know, it, where they diagnosed it and then from there went to the Mayo Clinic. Um, so it was a, it, yeah, it was a process. It, it was a shock, and yet there was some relief knowing that there was something that I could do. Just the not knowing is oftentimes worse than having the, knowing what you're dealing with, I believe. That was scary uh, because we, that, exactly, even having the uh, pacemaker put in, as I said, we didn't know what for. We only know that it was going to help her heart maintain a, a rhythm, but we didn't know what was the root of all her problem yet. We still had no idea. So uh, when we went down there and uh, Dr. Falk, who was the amyloid cardiologist at Boston University Medical Center, uh, put us through some testing, he said, you know, uh, your heart is going to need it. You're going to need a new heart. It's only running at 40% capacity. Uh, you would not survive a stem cell transplant without a new heart. So there was no one in the country that would give her a heart transplant except the Mayo Clinic because they were working closely with BU on a cure for amyloid. And they were looking for the right person also to have this treatment done this way because it's very unusual, as you would know as a doctor, to have a transplant before the disease is eradicated. Can I say, uh, I'm going to inter interject that um, Dr. Skinner, Martha Skinner, who's at uh, that time the head of the amyloid research department, um, met with her, we met with her, 
and I'll never forget sitting on this side of her desk and she said oh here's your treatment plan and she had a yellow legal pad <laughs> and she wrote in pencil I think it was one new heart and one stem cell transplant and she pushed the pad across the desk to me and I said I thought oh okay I can do that <laughs> because when somebody wrote it down for me and said this and she was very um, kind and very wise and I trusted her and so I said, all right okay <laughs> she was a wonderful white-haired lady you, you'd love to have her as your aunt or whatever, grandmother or something. She was a wonderful, very soft-spoken and very, very smart lady, obviously. For the two of you, you also, I mean, I know that the spiritual aspect of all of this was so important. You have a quote in here, Bill, if the head and the body are to be well, you must first cure the soul. And mm. this is from Plato. And you've already referred to one of these, a God moment that you've called it, where your boss was late for an appointment and then he happened to hear you go down, so he was able to kind of pick you up there. And you came to really rely on a lot of God moments and God people in your life to help move all of this forward. Because Dr. Skinner saying one heart transplant, one stem cell transplant, that meant People had to help take care of your house, help take care of your adult children, um, help kind of raise funds. I mean, the, you were really relying on your community to make this all happen. We were relying on the God of our higher, our higher power, the God of our understanding anyway, to help us somehow. And that was the spirituality of it. And, and of course, the spiritual part for me was overcoming the desire to drink. I was an alcoholic. I am an alcoholic. And uh, thank God I really kind of reached deep to avoid drinking for the pain that it was causing me, to think of my wife maybe losing her already. You know, we had just been married for a year and a half. We'd been together for about seven years. We'd just been married a year and a half. And it was, uh, well, that was very frightening. And I, I do remember in the book writing about when I, which was actually happened, I remember yelling, please God help me, as I drove by Cappy's liquor store, leaving Boston. And I said the serenity prayer, and I just kept going. And about a mile later, I think I smiled, thank God I did that. And uh, that was a turning moment for me, because that, then I knew I was turning it over to a power greater than myself to help me, which meant that power could work through our friends, as you said. Uh, what are we going to do with the house? What am I going to do when I get out there? I had planned to sell the house, perhaps, maybe work also. And I, well, I was definitely planning to work. But fortunately, our community came behind us and really helped us a lot so that I didn't have to work and we didn't have to worry about the money angle. I think that um, that turning it over was important. When you get to, I, I felt personally, you know, I was at a point where I, what else could I do? That was, we always have choices, but that was what I chose. And our friends, you know, we didn't even know that help was out there until they came forward. Hmm. And so part of the growth in this was learning to receive instead of always being the one helping others or do you know, that, that feels better, that feels more empowering, but it's really, uh, it's difficult to let yourself be vulnerable enough to receive help. And we did. And and it was in that spirit that we accepted it because we knew it wasn't of our making. We didn't go looking for it. We didn't ask to raise funds. It, they just did it. God did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Exactly. And I can remember thinking to myself as a man, you know, I'm supposed to be in charge here. I'm supposed to be. I'm, we should. I should figure out this and have the money available. And I should have. Should. 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 
And, you know, all the shoulds in your life can, can go out the window. And I did this time because I could recognize that once I stepped back and let the people who wanted to help us help us, then I could be with Anne and be her spiritual and moral support rather than someone who's always running around with his head trying to figure out how to do this and that. And uh, things came together much easier that way once I let go of being the man responsible. And that's an issue that fortunately in AA we talk about a lot, giving up control. You don't have control. Uh, most of us don't, we just don't realize it. And I still take it back a lot, you know, I'm not, I'm not cured. You know, I still try to control this or try to control that. But you basically, uh, in this situation, I realized finally, uh, when while we were still at BU, thank goodness, that uh, I could step back and let friends come in and do what they wanted to do to help us, and they did. We had to do our part, too. I mean, and that is being advocates for, I had to be an advocate for my own well-being and health care, and Bill was there doing the same for me for us and we had to take make sure that we took care of ourselves physically mentally mm -hmm. and spiritually mm -hmm. for any number of reasons for surviving the ordeal and just because yeah it was very uh very frightening for quite a long time i guess that's a good word to use and uh, even stepping back watching things happen around us it was good because there were the as you point out, there were these God moments that came in that reassured us. You know, even the call I got from our friend when I was home, before, as I said before, we left from uh, BU, uh, telling me they were starting up a fundraising committee. I thought, well, you know, I wasn't aware that they were going to come up with the amount of money they did. I was thinking in smaller amounts. You know, it would help us out a little bit. So it was quite a uh, quite it was. It was redemptive, I guess. Well, it was such a positive affirmation for what the human spirit can do. There was so much support, and it was just a groundswell of support in the community. The blood drive they held, it wasn't for me. I didn't get the blood personally because the system doesn't work that way, but uh, there was... There were there were there were so much... I don't know how many. They, they Two, hit all kinds of records that 222 day. pints of blood were... They usually gather at most 40 or 50... That's a good drive. So they had 222 people lined up at the Kenny Vonk High School gymnasium to get in. You know, you often see um, or hear about disasters or things where people are in need and the community rises to the occasion. That's so wonderful that it, just to see that happen. And they continued to support you when you went out to get your heart transplant when mm -hmm. you were at Mayo. And you were there for quite a while. Five and a half months. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a process. Yeah. It is. Well, and, yeah. and, and uh, we left our home to go to BU where I could be evaluated. I thought we were going to be gone for, we thought we were going to be gone for three or four days for the evaluation. But I didn't leave BU because I needed to be monitored. And then we flew right to the Mayo Clinic. So I felt a little bit like Rip Van Winkle. Because <laughs> how many months later did we come home? <laughs> well, it was January fifteenth, and we left August first. So uh, it was it was quite an ordeal. Yeah, <laughs> Rip Van Winkle, I guess so. Well, and of course, Doctor Falk uh, had told us before we left mm -hmm. BU. He said the heart transplant is very important. I certainly hope your evaluation comes through. He says I think it will, uh, because Anne has at best six months to live. Mm -hmm. And we didn't realize how advanced the disease had gotten until I heard that. Here on Love, Maine Radio, we've long recognized the link between health and wealth. 
Here to speak more on the topic is Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. Wouldn't it be great if we could spend our days doing all the things we dreamed of while gazing up at the stars on a crystal clear night? Yet for most people, and I include myself in that group, the realities of daily living prevent it from happening. We all have responsibilities to our employers, our families, people who rely on us to be there for them. But what if you could get to a place where you're able to reinvent yourself and start a new journey that was more fulfilling? What if you could define what true north meant and find your star and start walking towards it? What if you had the money to embark on a second life because financial worry had fallen off your radar? This, my friends, is what I call the seventh state of your financial evolution. And while I'm certainly not there yet, I'm here to help you get there. It's time to evolve. Get in touch with Shepherd Financial and we'll help you evolve with your money. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. Investment advice offered through Flagship Harbor Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Flagship Harbor Advisors and Shepherd Financial are separate entities from LPL Financial. Love Main Radio is brought to you by Bangor Savings Bank. For over 150 years, Bangor Savings has believed in the innate ability of the people of Maine to achieve their goals and dreams. Whether it's personal finance, business banking, or wealth management assistance you're looking for, at Bangor Savings Bank, you matter more. For more information, visit www.bangor.com. Describe the process of waiting for this new heart and knowing that in order for you to get a new heart, somebody else's life would end up That's no, the no hard, longer existing. Yeah, that, that was the hard. worst. That's the worst part. Yeah, that was the worst part. And not knowing. No, and not at the knowing. same time, trusting that the right heart was going to be found. Hmm. And that's um, a very, uh, very spiritual experience. I, I, it, I can't put it into words. It's such a uh, privilege and such a gift. I don't know the family. I've written, I wrote to them um, after I was home finally that February, a gift, a, a letter of gratitude. And I, you said I had to send it to a clearinghouse where they keep them. And then the families asked if they want to read it, and they weren't ready. And I don't know if they've ever read it. I, I, it does. It matters, but it doesn't really matter because I, I have so much gratitude, and uh, we pray for them every day. I do. Mm-hmm. There were friends of ours who lived in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, and I can remember waiting that night when we got the word of it. Uh, they told us the next day that there was a young girl, 14 years old, who was killed in an automobile accident. And we have every reason to believe, because a couple of the doctors did mention it was a young heart, that that may have been the uh, heart that was given to us, given to Anne. And uh, I mean, it just brought tears to our eyes at the time and mine too, to think that some young girl, you know, had had to give her, uh, had fortunately been an organ donor, but her parents maybe allowed that, I'm not sure, but we don't know. Uh, again, it's a mystery to us and it shall always be a spiritual moment in our life to know that, you know, someone gave something so precious, you know, as their daughter's heart to my wife. And uh, so that was that was a big that was a big deal when we heard that. And I thought, well, maybe we'll find out someday. We still don't know, but we do know that the heart was an incredibly good match. That's 
one thing that we've been very pleased about. There was one one time just before that, this my heart became available that they thought they had another one. I mean, but that was oh, a yeah. false alarm because it turned out not to be a good match. They know that ahead of time when they saw it, it, it didn't go through. And even then, we thought, well, it must not have been the right one. In all, it was 52 days. And that erroneous uh, heart, well, I guess it was the blood type, I forget, but whatever it was, I think that was around the 43rd, 44th day. So we waited another week or so, and finally the word came. And even then, it was like midnight, and I'm st we're still waiting until they pulled the gurney up. <laughs> I was so sure that was, it, it, that was the right one, and it was going to be fine. It's hard to describe that feeling, but I just felt calm and peaceful and excited. And, uh, and I was wound up like a drum. <laughs> <laughs> she's calm. She's getting a new heart. I'm, I'm going crazy. <laughs> So tell me about this new heart that you have beating in your chest. Um, you're an artist. You're very well known for the work that you do. Has this changed your sensibilities in any way? Has this changed? I mean, is there anything for you that is coming across differently, artistically or otherwise, with this new heart? No, I think I've grown and my work has matured. Uh, Probably because of the experience, and but I don't think it's I don't it's I don't think it's like the stories you hear that somebody suddenly craves French fries and they never did before or something like that. <laughs> yeah, hmm. but I just know it's. I'm always aware every day of what a gift it is, and that's life changing. So yes, it's probably affected my work in that way on a yeah. spiritual level, and and affected my work in that I'm here to do it. <laughs> Mm -hmm. It's quite a gift, and I, I realized myself in writing this that I wasn't sure how it affected her work, but I did know that, just like she said, she is here to do it. And that was the amazing part, because six months to live and now 17 years out, we've just had her evaluation, and she came through with flying colors. So this is 17 years later. And yet things weren't all done. No. Mm -mm. Because in 2011, you, Bill, were in downtown Kennebunk at an AA meeting, and all of a sudden you heard sirens going by, and something else was about to happen after all you had been through. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So describe that for me. Well, I was downtown at a meeting, and I heard the uh, sirens just before the meeting ended, and went outside and was talking with somebody, and it just didn't arouse any worry because uh, we live near the turnpike and they always have the ambulance and fire truck, uh, excuse me, police cars go by for, for accidents that are on the turnpike. So I didn't think anything of it until I was driving home uh, going down Fletcher Street realizing that uh, there's a police car I had to pull over for and as I turned a corner near the high school I suddenly realized that police car was going down my, my street and I'm thinking oh my god, I wonder which neighbor <laughs> Is having a problem, and then I got to my house, and I was just terrified, just plain terrified. I just saw all of a sudden two ambulances, three police cruisers, and um, I, they had already broken in the door because I wasn't home yet, and had found her on the floor again, um, comatose, I guess, lifeless yeah. anyway. In many ways, she was uh, she. But then they woke her up. She was screaming, and 
I got her on the gurney and on our on our, they got her on the gurney and out into the ambulance and on her way, and I had to watch this. And fortunately, uh, I found her list of medications. Told them that she was a heart transplant patient. Although uh, a neighbor down the street who was an EMT had come up and told them already, and uh, it was just plain frightening. And she was obviously frightened and scared too at the moment. Uh, we did not know at the time what happened, but she dialed 911 and collapsed. I don't remember doing that. I don't remember dialing. I just vaguely remember, you know, I had kind of a headache and a back pain in my back, and must have gotten worse so that I passed out. But I don't remember calling nine one one. Yep. So that's interesting. And the only reason they, well, well you know, we ha- we have the nine one one service now, so they can trace the call, and that's how they knew to come to the house. Right. And they looked in through the window and saw me on the floor, and so that's how they broke in. In our office, yeah, in our office. And uh, so by the time I got home, they had just broken in. And uh, fortunately, everybody had had her taken care of. But. And what you had was really serious and mm-hmm. and not something that would have been expected for you. Um, you actually had ruptured your aorta. Mm-hmm. That's a big deal. And the aorta is the body's largest vessel, and it brings blood up to your brain and to all of your limbs. And it's not something that you would have expected to have happen. You probably would have died, except there was scar tissue from your transplant. Yes. So exactly. it's kind of an interesting thing that you had something happen to you previously that everybody would have said, oh, that's bad. But then you have something else that happens to you, and in that moment, it was a good thing. Yes, it saved my life twice, my new heart did. Yeah. That was amazing. Yeah, they, mm-hmm. When we brought her Southern Maine Med, of course, they they just said, where do you want her to go? Because we could have, it was a very stormy, wintry day, February. And it was, uh, it was, I thought, well, let's go to Maine Medical Center. But I said, why don't you call Gilbert Mudge, Dr. Mudge, who's the chief cardiologist at that time. He uh, said, bring her down here immediately. He said, don't even waste your time. So they had to get together a storm team, I guess, whatever they call it, the, the ambulance ride down. And uh, when they saw the x-rays after they get down there, Dr. Cooper, who was a world-famous cardiologist, said, I don't believe this. I said, I don't think it's ever happened before. He said, I just don't believe this. And he said, your scar tissue has covered your aorta. And he said, otherwise, you would have died within five minutes. So he said, you're, uh, we've looked this up. We, we're, one of the doctors there said, we are figure it's about 150 million to one chance that this would ever happen. And uh, I said, holy mackerel. I guess that was my response. I was like, wow. There was another obviously enormous God moment. <laughs> I mean, that was just, if the aorta had burst even an inch higher, he said, wherever. But it burst where the connection was made between the uh, old heart and the new. And all of this, um, this that was happening in 2011, I think the thing I was most struck by was by that time, your daughter, Kate, was working at Maine Home Design. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. Yeah. and people, I think, having read this book, and I shared this with um, the publisher of the magazine, and he said, I had no idea that this was going on with that family at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just kind of reminded me of two things. One, that you never really know what's going on in someone's life. They can be undergoing something yeah. with their family, with their mother, um, right. and you just don't know. Mm-hmm. And then the other is that uh, we went to Kate and Joe's wedding mm-hmm. this last summer, and I'm sure that this meant so much more to them having been through this with the two of you. You know, if my mother had had a heart 
stop and a transplant and a stem cell transplant and an aortic rupture, you know, my wedding, not that it wasn't already a good wedding, but I think it would have been so much more meaningful. <laughs> well, it was more mm -hmm. meaningful to me as a mother. I, I consciously watching Joe and Katie be married, thought, thank you, God, I'm here to see this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's time to write another letter to the donor family. <laughs> <laughs> another letter of thank you. Yeah. It sounds like there's a lot of lives that have been positively impacted by whomever it was that donated her heart to you. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, quite a few people. And if it's the donor, we suspect it may be the, that particular person whose name we don't know. Um, there were other transplants that day from that person eyes, somebody, kidneys somewhere, liver somewhere. Mm -hmm. It's an incredible yeah. gift. I think people should become organ donors if they are spiritually moved to do so. I think they should pay attention to their heart and any symptoms that they have because you never know when strange things could be going on that you don't know the answers to. Yeah. I also encourage people to, Bill, um, get a copy of your book, Miracles Do Happen, a story of medical and spiritual survival, which I know is available through Amazon. And Anne, tell me, um, you have a website that people can go to to see more of your art. Yes, so what is that? Anne Gable Alaire Fine Art. And the... Well, I really appreciate you're both coming in and well, talking to thank us you. today. And it seems appropriate. This is called Love Main Radio. So about it's all about love and the heart. And clearly, it's not just the actual physical heart that has gotten you as far as it has. It's also the love that has surrounded you from so many different directions. So I feel fortunate to be here talking with you about yeah, it. Thank, thank you. you for yeah, having us. Thanks it's for having us. It's a privilege and, and joy yeah. to share our story. Yes, it's wonderful to share the story and know our love is still working too. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, very good. We've been speaking with Anne Gable-Alaire and Bill Alaire, and um, congratulations and many more years of love for the both of you. Thank well, you. Thank you Appreciate so much, it. Lisa. As a physician and small business owner, I rely on Marcy Booth from Booth, Maine to help me with my own business and to help me live my own life fully. Here are a few thoughts from Marcy. When was the last time you took a break from what you were doing, from the work that was piled up on your desk, and just looked up. I know that during the course of my days, I often forget to take a moment or two to just breathe, look up at the sky, and dream. Terrible that I have to remind myself to breathe, but when I do, I feel energized because in those moments, I'm able to let go of the daily grind and think more about what I want to accomplish, how I want my business to grow. Sometimes, those are the aha moments. If we all took a few moments out each day to stop what we're doing and dream a little about our business futures, not only would we feel a great sense of calm, but we may come to realize that these dreams can, in fact, come true. I'm Marcy Booth. Let's talk about the changes you need. BoothMaine.com This segment of Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com. February is known as Heart Month, and although February is past as you're listening to this, we still have an active interest in thinking about our hearts. 
Um, today we speak with Deborah Daw Heffernan, who is the author of An Arrow Through the Heart, a personal story about how she survived a near-fatal heart attack and eventually required heart transplant. Deborah lives with her husband in western Maine. Thanks so much for coming in and talking with me today. Thank you. This was a really great book because um, as a physician, I get to hear people's stories, but it's a snapshot. I was able to read your story and I got more of a panorama of your life and what led up to your um, heart attack and so what happened afterwards. This is really a treasure for people who are going through something similar. Thank you very much for saying that. Yes, I think it's important for physicians as well as those of us who are going through these things that disease happens in the course of a life. And you can't just treat the disease, you have to approach your entire life. Um, So I worked hard to give people a context for what happened to me, because while my story is not going to be their story, um, the point is that your story matters, and how you manage your illness has to be looked at in the context of how you lead your life and what else you have going on in your life, what pressures you feel. Um, And I think illness can be a swift sorting of priorities for people. It can actually give quite a few gifts if you have the proper mindset. So I think context is everything, and the context is life. And your context was particularly interesting for me because uh, you were a young, well, you're still a young woman, Mm -hmm. but you were a younger woman (laughs) when this happened to you. You were 44 years old, and you were doing all the things that you, that all of us think that we should be doing to have a healthy heart and a healthy life. You were exercising and you um, were eating right and you were maintaining a good weight and you weren't a smoker and you you didn't have any of the, what we think of traditional reasons for having a heart attack. You were in a yoga class when you actually had your Yeah, imagine that. I was very lucky to be in a yoga class, actually, because in yoga, you're very centered in your body. And any yoga teacher worth his or her salt knows that the body does not lie. So I thank the gods that I was in my yoga class because I was attentive. My teacher knew immediately that I was ill. She didn't doubt me. She didn't question me and immediately got me to the hospital. So that ended up saving my life, as did my lifelong habit of taking care of my body. Back to context, that whole context of family background and how you're raised and the food you're fed as a child. um, We've all taken our health very seriously in the household of six children. Um, and I was the eldest, and perhaps we took it more seriously than others because um, when I was 13, my mother died of a completely separate genetic disorder that people don't know much about called Wegener's disease, utterly unrelated to what happened to me, but she was the exact same age I was when I had my heart attack, um, which was immensely hard for my father to see me, his eldest daughter, going through what the love of his life had gone through, lying there in an emergency room, dying. Um, That was very hard on our whole family. But I do have that family strength of a lifetime of habits leading up to actually being in a yoga class um, when my heart attack hit. Um, I 
puzzled that through often, as you know, in the book, because you go through many stages of grief. It's just like Kubler-Ross wrote about the stages of grief. And um, at the beginning, you've got denial, and then you've got anger. And so when I got into my angry phase, I blamed everybody, everything, quietly, not lashing out at anyone. But alone in my bed, I would review my life. Whose fault is this? And then the worst fault was looking within and saying, okay, so what did I do wrong? So I had to look at these health habits and say, no, I was doing everything right. So I'd go to my doctor and say to the cardiologist at Mass General who sees me, Mark Semigrand is now chief of cardiac transplantation. I said to Mark, okay, so here I was doing everything right. And it still happened to me. I mean, I could have been a slug lying on a couch eating potato chips and watching TV. And that would have been more fun than my discipline. And he said, oh, yeah, sure, you could have done that. And it would have happened then, too. But the difference is that you were in shape for the fight of your life. And most American women are not. And that really brought me right up straight and was yet another motivator for writing this book because... One in six women today persist in not understanding that heart disease is our number one killer, more than all cancers combined. And yet 90% of American women have at least one cardiac risk factor. It's not hard to take a walk every day. It can be squeezed in. You can run up and down the stairs in your office. It can be done and people can eat properly and cheaply. So why are we not doing it? This to me is the big mystery of heart disease. This is the one disease that we have a lot of control over. And I'm very lucky that I had taken control through a lifetime of good habits because what happened to me was freak and it was still my heart. Um, We still don't know exactly what happened. At the time of my first heart attack in 1997, it was undefined. We knew that my left anterior coronary artery, one of the main arteries that pump blood in and out of the heart and feed the heart, that just shredded. The technical term is dissection. No one knows why. To this day, no one knows why. Today, we have a name for this. It's called a spontaneous coronary artery dissection. It usually happens to women, right in the age group I was. Um, Another sideline is that most women don't understand that this is the number one cause of natural death among young women, 25 to 44. That is, I don't mean the SCAD is, but heart disease, heart failure of some kind is the number one killer. SCAD is a very small subset of it. It's the number one natural cause of death outside of adverse events and accidents like a murderous boyfriend or a cyclone or something. So for all purposes, this is young women's killer. But I certainly didn't know that in 1997 when I felt this unbelievable pressure on my chest in my yoga class, but I had happened to read an article in a magazine when I was on an airplane flying to one of my clients that read out the symptoms, and I thought, oh, I'm going to memorize this. My macho mountain climbing husband won't go to the hospital if this happens to him, but it happened to me. But what happened to me was this small subset called SCAD, Spontaneous Coronary Artery Dissection. Why didn't we hear about it back then? As I've been told, most people don't have it diagnosed except at the coroner's because we die outright. 
I survived one, and half my muscle, the left ventricle, was shot as a result of it. So I lived then for nine years with half of a functioning heart, which meant I had half the day, half the energy. I'd be in bed by two, dead asleep. My husband would have to wake me at four or five. We'd go out for a little walk then, so I kept up that routine, hoping I could avoid the heart transplant. But then... In 2006, I had a second SCAD. My right coronary artery exploded this time, this time following a nice gentle massage. So Mass General likes to joke that relaxation is not good for me at all, (laughs) that I should avoid it and stay stressed, right? (laughs) So um, I've actually survived not one but two SCADs, a very tiny subset of coronary artery disease, but it exists nonetheless. And it's for that that I was in shape for the fight of my life, because who could have predicted it? The transplant, it's a big deal. And it's not, here's your heart, see you later. It's its a, the rest of your life, you have another person's heart beating in your body. Yes. And you need to take care of yourself. You need to avoid um, infections, you know, it, you came in and you you declined very politely to shake people's hands because you don't have an immune system. It's a very real thing, mm-hmm. and it's you take and you take medications that cause side effects like weight gain. Yeah. So it's it's a commitment. It's an enormous commitment, and um, you're vetted for that up front. Um, there are psychological and social factors that are taken into consideration in preparation for a transplant, in addition how dire your need is, where you are on the list, um, and your chemistry, your infections, um, your entire health history has to be taken, recorded, because that very last minute is matched against your uh, your potential donor. Um, but in addition to all the biological and chemical um, exploration of your body, which is extensive testing, um, and you have to pass and fail all the right tests, or, or you don't qualify to be on the list. Uh, but a big part of that is the psychological and the social. Having a strong, loving network really matters. And I didn't quite understand why. I certainly understood the role of my um, unbelievably devoted husband and my family um, and all of the kids. And we have a very, very lucky supportive network and that has gotten me through from the very beginning but I didn't understand because there's nothing like experience until I actually began living with a heart transplant how important that network 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 is um Um, The responsibility is huge, and it's all-consuming. It takes a lot of time. I fool people because I look great. I know I look great. I work hard to stay as healthy as I possibly can. I have gained well over 20 pounds since my very, very sick days. Part of that was just getting me back up to a normal grown woman's weight because heart disease is debilitating. Um, But also, as you say, it's the drugs. The drugs put weight on. So there are many physical adjustments that you go through. Um, The weight gain for me was really hard because I find having been so thin all my life naturally um, and then thinner because I got so sick, I'm very conscious that I'm hauling weight around all the time, no matter how hard I try to stay slender. It's it's really all-consuming, um, and I'm aware that that puts stresses on my body that 
can quicken the deterioration of my body. So it's not a vanity um, project I'm on. It's You just happen to look healthier if you are healthier. It's just very natural. Look at all the athletes. Have you ever seen an ugly athlete? No. Um, it's because they're healthy and they're blooming with something inside. I try to go for that bloom. Um, the immune suppression is the big challenge in um, cardiac transplantation. Uh, putting the heart in is a very refined art now. Uh, you can it's, you can watch it on YouTube, and it's actually quite beautiful. It's like lowering a lovely balloon into the chest cavity. It's it's quite a remarkable thing to watch if you have the stomach for it. But I was curious. Um, I wanted to see what happened to me. So that the doctors have down. Um, the issue is immunosuppression, which I'll be discussing more in my next book, Perfect Stranger, um, because it's a complex journey that I don't believe has been adequately addressed um, or explored among the patient population themselves. As, as you said earlier, Lisa, People say, wow, you've got this new heart, so everything's great, right? You cannot imagine how many times I hear that. And so I'm in this conflict because, of course, it's great. I'm alive. I should have been dead nine years ago. Here I am. I'm ecstatic. I feel like the little kid who goes to her first preschool and experiences her first roll call, and people say, you know, and Deborah Daw Heffernan, are you there? And I'm like, yes, I'm here. Yay, I'm here. You know, kids don't realize you never know what you're volunteering for. <laughs> but I am here. I'm more present than I've ever been in my life. Illness has actually given life back to me in many ways, obviously, because I've had this gift of the heart transplant, uh, for which I will be forever, ever, ever in loving debt to my anonymous donor and his or her family. But the other side of it is, and I will put it as Mark Semergrand said to me years ago in preparation. He said, Deborah, in preparing for a heart transplant, you have to consider that the challenges you're facing now in acute heart failure are not going away. They're just changing to something different. There'll be different challenges different medications, different side effects. But it's not that we will put you back to Deborah in the yoga class before she moved into reclining Marichiasana and felt her heart explode. That Deborah's body is gone. And also, I love how my mind and spirit have advanced, so I don't regret a lot of the learning. I regret the way it had to happen. He said, you are simply exchanging them for another set. It's an exchange. And having that in my head has helped me through the immune suppression exchange because I emerged from my heart transplant ecstatic to be here and have to be careful. So there's that joy, unbridled joy, you cannot imagine it, with don't hug me, don't kiss me, don't touch me. We have 17 grandchildren. I can't touch them beyond when they're in their earliest infant phases. I've only recently started hugging my older grandsons who are like 17 and 18. And to feel their big arms around me, man, do I love it. Because they're of an age where they understand that if they have a cold, 
I can get pneumonia. And if I get pneumonia, I can't kick it because that is what we die from. We die from infections. And the other side's effect of immunosuppression is um, cancers. And so, yes, I already have a cancer starting. It's being watched. And if it gets more than little spots, out comes the uterus. <laughs> and I'm fine with that. With all the operations I've been through, two open heart surgeries, the heart transplant, numerous defibrillators put in and out of my chest, I understand that my life is high tech now. Um, but I think a lot of people have no clue that immunosuppression is serious. I think they, th and I think back to my friends who have gone through struggles with AIDS and cancer and bone marrow transplants and all these things. Um, the people who live on immune system disorders know deeply what I'm talking about. Uh, the others will go through their periods and they understand as well. For a transplant patient, if we do not adhere to our protocols, we're dead. Um, I'm eight years out now, almost nine years out. Um, the average life is nine years. Um, I'm certainly going for 35 or 40. <laughs> There's a new Swedish study that says the average has been up to 20. My doctor says you have to look at the law of averages. There's a business term for it. I'm forgetting what the name is. But you have to look at it in terms of what you're doing for your body how your body is responding, and develop your vision of your future based on that. And that's what I stick with. I don't look at the data. Um, but I have been very ill. The first five years, I was nonstop sick. But I was grateful that I had in my ear that it's an exchange, because I'm used to being sick. And then when I'm not sick, I'm well. And I'm having a great time, enjoying everything that I possibly can. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines, carefully prepared by experienced professionals, coupled with care and attention, focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled, you need attention, advice, and individual care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be. Experience chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Maine Seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants The Front Room, The Grill Room, and The Corner Room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch lobstermen bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit www.theroomsportland.com. When can we look forward to your next book? I think in about a year. Lisa, I'm not done with it yet. Um, as you're interviewing me, I finally got my website written. I've updated an arrow through the heart. That's at the publisher. It's about to come out. The website is about to get launched. And um, 
Perhaps by the time this aired, both will be happening. And that's been occupying a good deal of my time for the last few months, so I have to get back to Perfect Stranger. So what is your website? It's just my name, com. It really is a pleasure to speak with you. You have quite a balanced view of what it means to have gone through this and to continue to go through this. Um, I appreciate your sharing your story with us and also through the readers with your book, An Arrow Through the Heart. It's not all, always that people take the lemons and make them into lemonade, but you're, you're doing that. And it's really impressive because there are so many people who would turn bitter after an experience like this, and you haven't. So you have a great view of the world, and I appreciate your coming on the show and talking with us. It does take work, Lisa. Um, We do have considerable control over our minds and spirits, more than we realize. And it's a choice to make the lemonade. It's a choice. I'm, I'm also human, and I have many bitter and sad moments. But I've learned how to shake them off. Again, coming back to Mark Semmergrand saying it's an exchange and uh, a sort of a Buddhist approach to this is life. Life has the birthday candles and the death watch. It's got the whole thing. And I think it's terribly important to experience all those life experiences um, because everyone's story isn't a fairy tale. And I don't regard mine as a fairy tale, but I do regard myself as um, privileged to have experienced the fullness of life's meaning at such a young age, when I can, I hope, have an impact on others through through my books to help them give some deep thinking to how they're spending these precious lives. And to that end, um, my husband and I um, do not keep any of my earnings for any of my book-related projects. We're lucky to be able to donate it all back to cardiac causes. So if anyone is so inclined to buy my book, and I hope they will. Um, It's all going back to research, so my feeling is if you buy a book, you save a life. Deborah, it's really, it's it's a pleasure, and I hope people will buy your book, An Arrow Through the Heart, and I hope that they will go to your website. We've been speaking with Deborah Daw Heffernan, and I hope you'll continue to use that wonderful new heart of yours and that ongoing body of yours um, to continue to bring joy to the world. Thank you. Thanks, Lisa. And thank you for bringing joy to the world. You have been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 182, Women of Heart. Our guests have included Anne Gable-Alaire and her husband, Bill, and Deborah Daw Heffernan. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Read more about Anne Gable-Alaire in Maine Home and Design. Love, Maine Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love, Maine Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter and see my running, travel, food, and wellness photos as Bountiful One on Instagram. We'd love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love, Maine Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love, Maine Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our Women of Heart show. Look forward to our future conversations with Ted Darling and Meg LePage, both of whom balance busy professional lives with athletic endeavors. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. 
Love Maine Radio is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Harding Lee Smith of The Rooms, and Bangor Savings Bank. Love, Maine Radio with Dr. Lisa Belial is recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Our executive producers are Susan Grisanti, Kevin Thomas, and Dr. Lisa Belial. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Content producer is Kelly Clinton, and our online producer is Ezra Wolfinger. Love, Maine Radio is available for download free on iTunes. See the Love, Maine Radio Facebook page or go to www.lovemainradio.com for details.